if you don't know me, my name is Pastor AJ, um, and I work here at Village Bible Church, and our other pastors are gone, so I get to deliver the sermon today. I'm pretty stoked about that. They're in Mexico right now with the Rancho Santa Marta team serving on the ranch down there and working and, uh, yeah, hopefully being a blessing to those people down there. If you want to pull out your sermon notes, which are blue today, because when I preach, I bring changes, and blue is the biggest change that I can bring, which I didn't really think through because you'll notice the dark blue one is really hard to read, um, but that's okay. It just says God's sovereignty and supremacy overall uh, trust. So if you have highlighters, if you're here at the beginning of the series, you can use those as we go along. Um, I'm not going to change the slide. That's going to be what it's going to look like the whole time. So you're going to have to use some of your own creativity and free will to highlight your own stuff. Um, but hopefully that'll be good. We have a lot of places to go today, and so we're going to get going. We have Isaiah 28 and 29, if you want to open your Bibles to that. If you don't have a Bible, in the seat in front of you underneath on that little oven rack thing is a Bible. And you can grab that, um, and you can use that. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that home with you, and that's our gift from us to you. So enjoy that. The title of today's sermon is Precious Cornerstone, Close Hearts, and Obedient Clay. And we will uh, look more into why that's the title in a little bit. Um, But the first section we'll come to um, is about the proud crown of Ephraim. Now this section in Isaiah, um, we're going to see a lot of uh, different things from God's more lessons in trusting God and more lessons in who we should trust, um, to God's judgment, um, to how trusting God in these times of judgment looks. And uh, we're going to look at a lot of stuff like that. Uh, this section was written likely around the time of King Hosea, which we all know who that is, so I won't go into too much more explanation. <laughs> it's written before the fall of the northern kingdom. 722 B.C. is when the northern kingdom fell um, to the Assyrians, and they came down as part of God's judgment on the people of Samaria, uh, the northern kingdom. And so the kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. So we're going to place this around 730 to 705 B.C. Um, That's your uh, history for the day. Isaiah 28 starts off, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he cast down to earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And the spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit, with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk... Those who are taken from the breast, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. 
yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will not will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. You see in verse 1, we start off with uh, this proud crown of Ephraim being referred to. Ephraim is often known, another way of saying the northern kingdom, we, we say Samaria, we say Ephraim, um, and other uh, prophets will say Israel, which is really confusing, but we're going to stick with Ephraim here. That's referring to the northern kingdom, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. God's basically saying, look at what you've done for yourself. You've set up this nice crown for you, and this is your proud crown. This is your joy. This is what you're doing. And look at you drunkards with this crown on your head, walking around like this is some sort of uh, great thing that you've done for yourself. A little bit of mocking from God here on, the, on this crown of Ephraim. The first point in your notes um, said that, says that the people of the northern kingdom have taken pride in their own works. They've taken pride in their own works. And we see quickly in verse 3 that this pride is going to be trodden underfoot. This uh, crown, I almost fell off the stage. This crown of Ephraim um, is going to be trodden underfoot. That's what God thinks of their pride. It's not something that spectacular. It's something so pathetic that it's just going to be trampled anyway. Um, but they've set this up as their uh, big thing and this thing that they love so much. Verse 5, God reaffirms that this crown, this pride, should be God all along. I mean, these people of Israel are God's chosen people, right? And he brought them out of Egypt, and he brought them into the promised land, and they're supposed to be worshiping God, but they're not. And so verse 5, God clearly makes it seem that that's not at all what his people should be doing. These people should be worshiping God, who is the rightful crown, who is, who is the one that they should take pride in. It says, in that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. See, God's people, um, often referred to as the whole nation of Israel, really the whole nation wasn't following God. So really his people were the small remnant who were going to stick over, who were going to last. Um, those were God's people. In verse 7 we see, uh, this was a little confusing for me as I studied. You see the top of your chapter 28? It refers to... Um, Ephraim and Jerusalem, but if you if you listened when I read through, if you read through it, was Jerusalem mentioned? No, not really. So, uh, where is Jerusalem? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's in verse seven. Uh, verse seven is where we see Jerusalem. The leaders are referred to as uh, reeling with wine, staggering with strong drink. It says the priest and the prophet do these things. Um, those were the people who were in Jerusalem trying to lead the people, but we see that they were doing a very terrible job, and that will be emphasized in a little bit. Um, it refers to the priest and the prophet as being drunk. Um, not a very priestly or prophet vocation. Um, it's, it's not a great place to be drunk. Um, there's nowhere that's a good place to be drunk, but this is like the most emphasized place that's not a good place. Uh, they were doing these things in private, and it was affecting their ministry. So your next point, if you can infer from that, is that what we do in private affects our ministry. What we do in private affects our ministry. So the people, the priests and the prophets would go in secret, and they'd drink a lot, and they'd be drunk, and then they'd go and like stagger along and try to do the ministry that they were called to do. And it wasn't really working. It doesn't really work like that. Um, I oversee the children's ministry here at Village, and 
one of the great things about that is I get to do things like Awana and VBS. And um, usually this is my month to teach first hour over there. So no one's over there right now. Your kids are just, no, I'm just kidding. No, um, Mary and Lydia are over there teaching your kids and they're doing a great job. Um, but one of the things that comes with that is I get to do things like training meetings for Awana and for VBS and things like that. Um, at Awana training meetings, I always remind our leaders that uh, their ministry doesn't end when they leave the church building. Their ministry can't end, or it can't only be from 6.30 to 8.15 on Wednesday nights. It doesn't work like that. You can't just flip the on switch and be on and all good and excited. Um, that's not how God's family works. That's not how the ministry of God works. And I even experienced this firsthand this past summer. I got to lead a VBS training meeting that didn't go so well. And uh, I was very tired, and I had come back from a long trip and spent a lot of time joking and having fun and stuff in the car, and then that transferred over to the meeting, and it, the meeting didn't go as well. Because what I did in private, um, in turn, affected the meeting that I was trying to run, and I wasn't able to be faithful to that. Um, so we all experience this firsthand in a lot of different ways as we go to ministries and we do things. Um, there's the old joke that you can be yelling in the car and then get out and be all happy and fine as soon as you get to church. Um, that's not how it should work at all. Um, there's a mantra that I like to adopt um, that says, it's okay to not be okay. And uh, that should affect and um, that should relate to how we relate to each other on Sunday mornings and how we relate to each other during the week. Um, that when we need help and we need real things in our lives, we have to be willing to not be okay with each other. We have to be willing to not have everything together. Otherwise, we're never going to have authentic relationship. Verse 8, I even heard an ew when I was reading this, which is good because that should be your reaction. Verse 8 says that their tables are full of filthy vomit. See, these people were drinking a lot and they threw up a lot because that's uh, what happens when you drink too much. And so they vomited all over these tables and the tables were full of this stuff. Instead of um, being sacred and being set apart and holy, um, priestly, uh, their ministry was being shown to be full of vomit. No space left. And in verse 9, this is a little repetitive and it was a little confusing, probably. Uh, What's going on here is that they're actually mocking Isaiah's ministry. They're saying, here's what Isaiah says, and if you look at the Hebrew, it's basically like baby talk. It's like, blah, blah, blah. Here's Here's what he says. It sounds like very, like, what little kids say. So they're mocking Isaiah, saying, oh, this is what Isaiah does. He goes and he teaches such simple doctrines, but we're so far above that. We're so much better than Isaiah's simple doctrines. Um, That's equivalent to us saying, we don't need the gospel. I mean, we've already heard the gospel. I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Um, Man, we need the gospel every day. We need to be reminded of that every day. Uh, If we try to go on our own and not use God's grace and not be reliant on God, um, man, that's that's a great place to stagger. It's a great place to fall apart and fill our tables with vomit. Um, you can't do it on your own. That's the message of the gospel. And that's what we believe as Christians. And so Isaiah was spending times, uh, time with these people, um, trying to slowly bring them along in the faith, trying to slowly teach them the doctrines of God. And he was being mocked by the leaders for it when these leaders were stumbling around drunk. Verses 11 through 13, we see that if uh, the people don't listen, God will use judgment to speak to his people through the form of the Assyrians. 
he says, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. Uh, God's trying to speak to his people through the prophets. He's been doing this for a while, and now he's trying to speak to his people through the prophet Isaiah, and they're not listening. God says, well, you're going to hear me one way or another, because what's going to happen is the Assyrians are going to come in, and they're going to take over the northern kingdom, and you're going to be gone. So one way or another, you're going to hear me. And the best way to hear God is from him, not through people of strange lips, basically meaning you're going to be destroyed by people who don't even speak your language. And that's how you're going to hear me. question I got from that is, will you receive God's word when it is taught, or will you dismiss it? Will you receive God's word when it is taught, or will you dismiss it? See, a lot of times, um, I believe every day God's constantly trying to teach us something about him and something about the world he's created and how we're supposed to relate to people around us. And I think oftentimes we can dismiss those things and be like, oh no, God's not really trying to teach me that I should be humble. In fact, I'm already humble enough. If I'm the most humble person I know, why would God want to be teaching me that? Um, we, we, we can dismiss these things and be like, that's not at all what's going on. Um, but God, one way or another, is going to teach us that lesson. And so we'd, we'd rather submit to God in obedience to him and what he's teaching us than dismiss it and have God teach us a lesson another way um, through the Assyrians in this case. I've had uh, enough experience in ministry to know people who have um, not listened to God and who have sat in seats um, in this church and not listened to God and walked away from God and ignored him, only to have God eventually teach them that lesson another way. Um, And that's a painful thing to walk through. That's a painful thing to see. Um, But what we need to understand is obedience to God um, is better than sacrifice. So the Old Testament teaches us a lot. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So being obedient and faithful in the first hand um, is better than eventually having to um, repent. Um, So just be obedient, be faithful. The last point on this is that God teaches us at our level. Um, God condescends to us. Not that he's condescending, but that he condescends. Does that make sense? So God's not like, well, hey, little guy, you're doing a great job today. You're being very obedient. That's really good for you. The God's not really condescending like that. He condescends to our level by things like giving us scripture in our language um, and things like talking to us like babies when we're babies. And when we're new in the faith, God will communicate to us like that, like Isaiah is communicating to the people here in this chapter Um, These people weren't that far along in their faith, and so God needed to communicate to his people like this. Otherwise, they wouldn't have listened. They wouldn't have known what to do. I don't go up to the first two third graders and expound on the doctrine of predestination, because that doesn't work. They'd just all stare at me and ask if we can play a game. Um, Yeah, you have to teach at the right level in order for people to properly understand, in order for people to grow. The next section I've entitled Precious Cornerstone, and that's not for a random reason. You'll see in a little bit that we'll talk about what a precious cornerstone is. Um, and that's this last half of Isaiah 28, verses 14 through 29. It says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule the people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an arrangement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, 
a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation who believes will not be in haste. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your arrangement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. From morning by morning, it will pass through, by day and by night, and it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim. As in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused. To do his deed, strange is his deed, and to do his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow the ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in weeds and rows and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The people have a fear, and this fear which usually when we talk about fear in the Bible, it's fear of God. Um, Their fear isn't of God. Their fear is of man. And they're terrified of man. They're terrified of what man can do because um, to be fair to the people of Israel, naturally in their place, they have superpowers all around them. They have the Egyptians um, to the southwest. And they have the uh, Assyrians to the north. And they have the uh, Babylonians to the south. And so they have these people all around them who can totally take over them. And so what the people do is instead of um, humbling themselves and praying to God to protect them and seek their refuge in him, they decide to start making treaties. So we're going to make treaties with these people so they're not going to harm us because we're little Israel in the middle here and we're in a terrible place if we don't have power, if we don't have authority. And so we're going to seek the natural resolution and we're going to talk to these powers around us and these people will ultimately protect us. Verse 15, it says, You have said we made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. The overwhelming whip passes through, it will come to us. What they're referring to here is the people of Egypt. Um, They're referring to this treaty that they've made with Egypt, saying that when this stuff happens, it's not going to affect them, because we've already made a deal with Egypt, and Egypt's going to protect us. And God's basically saying, Oh, really, Egypt's going to protect you? Really, that's what's going to happen. And he's saying every time they come through, um, the people come through to attack you or attack other nations, they're going to um, destroy you. It's going to happen day by day and night by night. It's just going to keep happening. Something that would make them safe. Um, their refuge was their lies. This great scenario where they don't have to worry about anything uh, because they have protection. And they've lied to themselves. Yeah, they're just going to be destroyed by the people of Egypt. Your next point in your notes, their refuge and their safety is their lies and not God. Their refuge and their safety is their lies 
Biggest point from this section, don't dismiss the supernatural for the natural. Don't explain away the supernatural for the natural. Um, we can do this a lot of times as Americans, as um, Christians. We can often do this where we see stuff happen and we go, oh, well, what probably happened was, you know, the weather patterns changed. And we have just some explanation to explain away what God's doing in the world instead of actually giving God the glory and the praise for what he's doing. And if we believe scripture, God is constantly at work all around us. God's constantly trying to show us stuff about him. Um, but we can totally explain that away. Uh, sunsets and sunrises are beautiful pieces of God's creation. And we could just be like, well, there's a lot of clouds. And so when the sun sets, um, the clouds look pinkish, and that's really cool. So the clouds did a great job today. Um, but ultimately, we should be giving the glory to God. And so what the people here have done in Israel is they have looked around them and seen this natural threat. They've seen the people and the powers around them and seen that this is not going to be a good thing. These people are going to attack us. And so they made treaties with people around them. Instead of sticking with God and being obedient to God and uh, listening to his commandment that says, don't make a treaty with Egypt, um, that would have been good. But they didn't do that. Verse 16 I'm sorry, last point on that last one. The end of Habakkuk, uh, in the book of Habakkuk, um, in the beginning of it, Habakkuk talks about how God is, uh, God mentions to Habakkuk how he's doing a wonder in their days that they would not believe if they saw it. Um, So putting that into perspective, God is doing wonders, even in our days today. Even when we can be bogged down by things like the election in a few weeks, um, we need to look at a bigger picture and see that God's on a throne. Um, God's doing wonders in our days that we wouldn't believe have seen. We have no idea what he's setting up. And this isn't the end. Um, so having faith and trust in God and being obedient to him, we can, we can rely on him and say that, like, God is constantly at work. God's not taking a month off uh, for November. God is working all around us all the time. And he's going to use people that he's put in power just like he used people like Nero um, in Rome. I'm not comparing our candidates to Nero. Um, just got to stay safe there. Uh, <laughs> but God uses people all the time, even people as wicked as Nero. Uh, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Your next point is that God alone is our foundation and our cornerstone. God alone is our foundation and our cornerstone. Um, That he's the one that we should trust in. A cornerstone, um, just really briefly, because I'm hoping a lot of you have heard this before, a cornerstone was usually where you'd start the foundation of a building, and it was where a lot of the weight would rest, um, and it was kind of like the beginning of the, the foundation. Um, so a lot of trust needed to be placed in the cornerstone in order for the building to work. Um, and so God uh, refers to himself as our cornerstone in this way. Ephesians 2 is where you should turn next. Ephesians 2, because this image of cornerstone wasn't just limited to the Old Testament or the book of Isaiah, it was used a few times in the New Testament. In fact, if you listen to one of the songs we've sung, you can guess that it was used about Jesus. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Christ alone is our cornerstone. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So this cornerstone we see is very important in Scripture. It translates to a New Testament understanding of Jesus and a better understanding of who Jesus is as our cornerstone. Um, So we have a double fulfillment here in that God is going to be the fulfillment of this cornerstone to the people of Israel and that Jesus will be the fulfillment of the cornerstone to the people of the church. Um, He's going to fulfill that for us. The people had tried to take refuge in their lies and in their falsehood and in their treaty with Egypt. Um, but that wasn't where their refuge should have been. That wasn't where they should have placed their trust. Their trust should have been placed in God alone as their cornerstone. And God alone is where their trust should have been. Verse 17, we see that their hiding place isn't God. Um, Because God says that he's going to sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Um, God doesn't do that if he's your hiding place. God doesn't do that if he's your refuge. But he does take away, um, he does take that away if you are his people and you're not following him. Verses 18 through 22, um, we see that this covenant is going to be annulled. This promise that they, this treaty that they've made with Egypt isn't going to hold up. Um, we see things like um, discomfort and inadequacy, as it says the bed is too short and the the blankets aren't long enough to stretch over. It's a, it's a nice piece of imagery. Um, if you've ever slept on a short bed or with short sheets, um, you know that that's pretty uncomfortable. And so these people that have tried to place their comfort in these material things and these people um, are going to experience that discomfort. They're going to see that this wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Um, the safety that they thought they had wasn't going to hold up. Verse 21, we see, uh, we see God refer to Mount Perizim and Gibeon. And I'm assuming that not everyone in here is an expert on the Old Testament. So I will go back and talk about that for a little bit. Perizim, uh, 2 Samuel 5, 17 through 25. Um, I'm, you, know, you, can, you can write that down if you want. You can look that up later. I'm just going to highlight it really quick. Uh, was this battle that um, God and the people of Israel had won. Um, they'd won this battle on Mount Perizim. Um, they'd also won this battle in Gibeon, First Chronicles 14, 8 through 17. And so the people, what they're saying is essentially God is going to continue to do for us what he's always done. We're his people. God's always just going to fight for us. That's how it works. Um, that's not how it works. Uh, if you read the book of Joshua, you can see that quite clearly. Um, God at one point says, don't go and conquer this area. And they're like, oh, we're going to go and conquer this area anyway. And then they lose the battle. Um, and God's like, well, I said, don't go. And then you went anyway. You try to rely on your own strength. That's not how it works. Um, they lost the battle there. Uh, 
People are expecting Perizim and Gibeon to work again, um, but it's not going to work. But God refers to it as something that's going to happen. He's like, remember Perizim and Gibeon, how I won there? He's like, well, I'm going to win again, um, but strange and alien is my work because my work is going to be done through other people who aren't you, and they're going to conquer you, and they're going to bring judgment on you. Um, that's how his work is going to be won. That's how his work is going to be done again, just like it was done there. Nobody owns God. The people of Israel are basically saying, we can sin all we want. We have freedom, and we're just going to go about sinning. In fact, we make sacrifices sometimes, and um, we uphold the festivals, and, and we, do, um, we do all these things, and so God's going to be faithful to us because we're his people. Um, but his people weren't following him. His people weren't acting like his people. Uh, the Old Testament refers to this covenant as both a blessing and a cursing. If you're obedient, you'll be blessed. If you're disobedient, you'll be cursed. Um, and so this disobedience has led to this curse and judgment um, through the prophet Isaiah as he communicates this. Yesterday's faith belongs to yesterday. Yesterday's faith belongs to yesterday. Where's today's faith? Are you here coasting on something that you did 10 years ago? Are you coasting on a camp that you went to in the summer? Are you coasting on a conversation you once had with someone where you mentioned something about Jesus? Um, Because God calls his uh, followers to um, give up their lives, to follow him with everything. Um, So yesterday's faith belongs to yesterday. Um, What you're doing today reflects who you are. Um, and not only that, if you're a Christian, what you're doing today reflects who God is. And if we're lying to the world about who God is, um, that's a terrible thing. Um, that's what I refer to sometimes as something that I don't want to stand too close to because I don't know um, what's going to happen. Um, I don't want to be too close to people who are lying about who God is. So sinners, this is a quote from one of the commentaries, sinners become architects of their own doom by continuing thoughtlessly in wrong choices. Sinners become architects of their own doom by continuing thoughtlessly in wrong choices. Um, We're all sinners. We're all saved by grace. Um, But what we can do if we're not Christians is we can get into this pattern of habitual sin and uh, end up in this place where we're just becoming architects of our own doom. We're setting it up for ourselves. Um, especially if you know the truth, especially if you've been in this church and heard the message of the gospel, um, Romans would say that there's no excuse. There's no excuse for that. Verse 22, the destruction will not be endlessly delayed. God is patient. In fact, that's one of the first things that we hear about who God is when we, when we first have him reveal his name to us in the book of Exodus. Um, um, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, not visiting iniquities from generation to generation. Um, God, God is patient in these things, but his patience doesn't last forever when it comes to judgment. God has to execute his judgment. It's part of his nature. It's part of who he is. This judgment will need to be realized. The destruction will not be endlessly delayed. The only way to flee from God is to flee to God. Uh, you see in the book of Jonah, this is one of the most clear examples of this. Jonah runs from God. And God is right there with him the whole time, in fact, causing this storm and this large fish to eat him. Um, The only way to properly flee from God is to flee to God, meaning that God will execute his judgment, and the only safety, the only refuge from that is through God. Verses uh, 24 through 28. 24, um, God's basically saying that there's 
there's something essential before we start sowing. There's something essential before we start over. And that this stuff needs to be reaped. The ground needs to be uh, redone. Uh, 25 through 28 seems to be a little bit of common sense. In fact, even in our uh, Western world where we're not farming as much, especially in this part of California, um, we can kind of deduce that this is usually what farmers would do, is that they do stuff like um, reap the crops like this. They wouldn't reap viciously the crops of, like, cumin, and they wouldn't reap viciously dill. Um, they they do that um, according to the crop, and they do that tenderly. Um, Isaiah is basically saying that this is common sense. Okay, this is how God works. This is what you should have known. This is what you've agreed to in the covenant, um, and this is how God's going to continue to work. And the people are responding, yeah, we all know how farming works. This is very easy. And so that's why Isaiah ends this section by saying, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. What you consider common sense, God is actually in charge of that too. And God's actually given that to us too. Common sense comes from God. A God who has a wonderful plan and is excellent in wisdom. Continuing on to chapter 29, the back half of your notes, God is coming. God is coming and he's going to visit his people in a few different ways. Verses 1 through 10. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. Now I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you shall be brought low from the earth, for you shall speak, and from the dust your speech shall be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like that of small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts, with thunder, and with earthquake, and a great noise, and with whirlwind, and tempest, and a flame of devouring fire, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold will distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint, with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves, and be astonished. Blind yourselves, and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads with seers. We're beginning a section here with uh, two meanings. We're beginning a section with both hope, 11th hour deliverance um, for the people of Jerusalem, and also one of judgment we see in the first few verses. It refers to them as Ariel, Ariel. Um, Ariel was both a name for Jerusalem, uh, the city where David encamped is what it's referred to in here. It was also the name for this place where uh, it was an altar hearth where the uh, ever-burning fire is it's a sign of the Lord's indwelling presence. That comes up in both Ezekiel 43.15 and Leviticus 6.12-13. It's also denoting where Ariel was, um, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. So he's using double meaning here. He's saying, ah, Ariel, Ariel. Uh, one of the translations said, woe, Ariel, Ariel. Um, but this doesn't seem to be as much of a judgment. In the first four verses, it 
It's very much judgment. Um, but after that, it's sort of this uh, message of hope. So we, we think that awe is a better translation here. Uh, but this idea of this uh, altar hearth where the sacrifice would be made, where this presence of God um, would be in the area, is also a really good one here too because it's what God refers to um, in a little bit. In verse 3, in verse 2, sorry, it says, and he shall be to me like an aerial. Um, that's meaning that these people who are going to be um, destroyed and judged in these ways are going to be to him like um, the sacrifices are. Not that the people are being sacrificed, but that um, this will be in his presence um, something that um, basically is the payment for their sins. Uh, judgment in verses 1 through 4, hope in verses 5 through 10. Notice in verse 3, um, the use of the word I. I will encamp against you. I will besiege you. I will raise siege works against you. Uh, this is both correcting the people of Israel's um, idea of the world and thinking like, oh, Egypt is doing this to us, or oh, Assyria is doing this to us. God's saying, no, remember, I'm in charge of everything. Remember, I'm the one who's sovereign over everything. I'm the one who's going to be doing this to you, because you have deserved this. It's God, it's not Assyria. Um, The first point in your notes, point A, God's coming brings judgment and hope. God's coming brings judgment and hope. Verse 6, You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with a great earthquake and a great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and a flame of devouring fire. Um, God's going to come and visit them, and God's going to deliver a remnant, as he kept promising through the book of Isaiah. Um, This visiting from God is very strong language, um, and this idea that God shows up so powerful like this, and it's supposed to kind of shock us a little bit, um, because God isn't someone who's easy to understand. Um, but God is an all-powerful, almighty person. Um, and so that's how God shows up. And it's a good thing that God shows up like this. They'll be delivered from their foes. A remnant will be delivered. Verses 9 through 10. Uh, willful blindness to the things of God decreases the chances of finding the right way. Blind yourselves and be blind. Um, if we're indecisive spiritually, we condemn ourselves. Um, we condemn ourselves with bewilderment. If we are indecisive spiritually, we condemn ourselves with bewilderment. Um, it says that the Lord has poured upon you a spirit of deep sleep in verse ten, and has closed your eyes and covered your heads. Um, the people have blinded themselves. They've chosen to start staggering. They've chosen um, to do these things and not follow God, and they've set themselves up for this coming judgment. Verses 11 through 12 are um, interesting. The vision of all that has become to you, the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men gave it to me, one who cannot read, um, sorry, when, when, when men gave it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give it the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. Um, verse 11, we see that it is sealed. It's this scroll being delivered, this book being delivered to the people, um, saying, read this. And they, they respond, it is sealed. This is a spiritual problem. Um, they've blinded themselves, as we see in the earlier verses, and they, they haven't set themselves up to properly read spiritually. 
Um, the second one is this human problem of I cannot read. And you see, uh, you can read it very quickly, but you can kind of feel in the text this, like, apathy. I can't read, and I'm not really planning on learning how, so I don't know, just keep the scroll away from me. Um, so we can do two different things. We can set ourselves up. Um, we can set ourselves up spiritually to ignore the things of God and not be ready to um, open what God's bringing to us, or we can um, make excuses and not be ready to read. Um, so what are we doing in our lives that are stopping us from reading? What are we doing that's um, not setting ourselves up for when God brings things to us? Are we ready to receive them? Are we ready to read? Verses 13 through 14. The Lord said, Because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and their sermon of their discerning men shall be hidden. See, the people, the leaders of the people of Israel were not using acts of worship. They were using acts of manipulation. The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Um, people are honoring God with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Next, note, next point in your notes. Do we approach God in worship? Or do we try to manipulate God? Do we approach God in worship, or do we try to manipulate God? It's a common understanding um, in some traditions that God needs to be pleased. And so we heap up good works, and we heap up these things that make us look good, um, and we try to like atone for our mistakes, which is an endless battle. Um, you are the worst sinner you know. I am the worst sinner I know. And this battle that we have where we're trying to atone for our own sin isn't one that we need to fight because it's already been fought. Um, you were saved by grace through faith. It is not of your own works. It is a gift of God. Um, it's not of your own works that no one may boast. We can't heap up good things enough to please God. We can't heap up these things enough to atone um, for our mistakes. And the other half of this is that we can't be those people who are fake. We can't be those people who are honoring God with our lips while our hearts are far from him. Because God sees right through that. And if we understand scripture, we see that our life is but a breath. Our life is a vapor. Our life is short. And so to fool around trying to please three or four people um, for a little bit of time and then standing before God's judgment seat, saying, well, I got three or four people to believe that I was following you. Was that really a, really a victory for eternity in hell? Um, your worship thought in your notes this morning was from John 4, where Jesus is talking to this woman from Samaria. And uh, Jesus says that the Father is looking for people who worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for people who worship in spirit and in truth. Um, I tell this to our high schoolers all the time, but God knows exactly who you are. He does. I mean, you've, you've hidden nothing from God. As much as you tried, you've hidden nothing. And maybe that's part of why it's embarrassing sometimes to pray to God. Maybe that's why it's embarrassing sometimes to um, spend time in his presence or why we try not to do it. Um, but ultimately what it comes down to is that we can be completely honest before God. We can be completely honest before him. He already knows. And it's not surprising to him when you come to him in prayer and you're like, God, I'm really struggling with lust. God, I'm really struggling with liking this person. I, I, I hate them. Um, God's not like, wow, I did not expect that. No, God already knows that about you. He knows your heart. Um, that's another one of the first things we learn about God in, in the book of Samuel. Um, 
God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God already knows your heart. So why not have that honest conversation with God? He already knows it. The people were more concerned with man-made legalistic rules rather than God's law. God's law promotes mercy, it promotes justice, it promotes equity. Um, God's looking for a few things from his followers. Uh, we see this in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Um, God's looking for people who are um, willing to walk humbly, do justice, to love mercy. And, and, and people who worship in spirit and in truth, people whose hearts are given over to God, people who are obedient, people who are faithful. That's what God's looking for in his followers. Um, a couple of things to write down there, Matthew 15, 1 through 9, Mark 7, 6 through 8, a couple of New Testament references to this here. Um, Jesus uses this to refer to the Pharisees in the New Testament. And the people who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Pretty accurate description. Um, not surprising that Jesus was spot on with that one. Um, Jesus isn't really off very often. He's not off ever. Sorry, just to clarify that. I was being sarcastic. Um, 15 through 16. Ah, you who hide deep counsel from the Lord. You hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us. You can turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of he who formed it, he has no understanding. God is sovereign. We are not, we are not self-sufficient. We are not self-sufficient. God is the one who's sovereign. Um, he knows where everyone is. He, you're not hiding from God anything. Um, those who hide their counsel from God, he, who sees us, who knows us? Um, God does. It's your answer. God sees you. God knows you. He already knows this. The other thing is that God knows his pots. God knows his pots. He knows how they're made. He knows what their uses are for. Um, Romans 9 uh, is another reference to this potter and clay imagery, uh, more relating to God's sovereignty there. Um, you can check that out later. Um, but God uses this imagery to show that he's, he's the one forming us. He's the one who's made us. And why are we hiding from him? Why are we saying things like he did not make us? Um, it makes no sense. Last point, God is sovereign and we are not. God knows his pots. God knows his pots. See, people can deny God his proper place, but he is still Lord. That doesn't change at all. God is still Lord no matter how people... Um, talk about him. He's still sovereign. He's still Lord. Just because people are um, profaning the name of God or people are dismissing God's place um, in, in our culture doesn't mean that he's stopped being in charge. Doesn't mean that he's stopped being king. Doesn't mean that he's stopped being ruler. Uh, verses 17 through 21. I'm just going to summarize those for you. Lebanon is known for its cedars um, and it's going to become not like a forest anymore. It's going to be trampled down. Um, it'll be turned to a fruitful field. Um, God's in charge. He's going to switch things. Um, verse 18 refers back to the scroll in verse 11. Um, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Um, finally, the last, last few verses, we get hope. It says, Therefore says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. And that section, who redeemed Abraham in the Hebrew, is emphasized. It's brought basically... Um, at a point of, of big emphasis, God, remember who redeemed Abraham. Remember Abraham? Remember his promise to Abraham, how he's going to bless all the nations and how God is faithful? Remember that? Concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For 
For when he sees his children and the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob. And stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. They will stand in awe of God. His children will sanctify his name. People will finally turn back to God. People will finally come back. There's hope here for that last remnant. Um, verses 23 and 24. People will come to understanding. Um, stand firm. Be patient with people. If you're in one of those um, mental relationships where you're upset about somebody not coming to understanding or, or where you're trying to like teach your children to follow Jesus and they're not doing it, be patient. Um, God is faithful. Rely on God. Allow God to work in those scenarios. Those who murmur, verse 24, is referring to those complainers. Those people who are complaining will eventually accept instruction. That's God's promise through Isaiah to the people of Israel. So what can we learn about God? You have a lot of blank in your notes there, hopefully because there's a lot you can learn about God from this section. I'm just going to highlight a few. Uh, We can learn that God is just, that God visits the um, sins of his people. And he visits the sins of his people today still. It's either on Jesus or it's on you. He's patient. He didn't judge the people right away, um, although they deserved it. God was giving them room to turn back to him and turn back to repentance. He is loving. He is sovereign. He's trustworthy. And he gives us hope. He gives us hope. See, the beauty of this is that we have the full story. As New Testament Christians, we have the full story. We know that... um, The people of Israel didn't just get judged and left. Um, The remnant was brought back. And God's message didn't just end when the people of Israel weren't sufficient. Um, When the people of Israel weren't faithful, God didn't just give up. And praise God for that, because sin is rampant. Sin is all over the place. Even in today's world, sin is all over. But even when sin entered the world in the book of Genesis, God had a plan to redeem us. And his plan was set forth even before sin entered. His plan was in motion, and that God eventually um, would send his son in Jesus to pay the price for your sins and for my sins. So that one day we can all live in eternity in heaven with God and not have to pay the price and live in hell um, forever, but we can rather dwell in God's presence once more. And that's the gospel that God offers us. Um, God offers us a place of eternal life with him. And sinners can no longer be slaves to their sin, but can rather be free in Christ. God is trustworthy. He alone is trustworthy. He already knows your hearts. He knows his pots. Give that over to him. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you that you alone are worthy of our praise, that you are a God who is patient, you're a God who's just, and you're a God who's loving. Lord, I ask that you would... uh, reach hearts this morning for you, that you would soften hearts and, and open up people to be willing to follow you, um, to be willing to give over those secrets to you and to know that you already understand that, Lord. Um, help us to seek counsel for help. Help us to know that it's okay to not be okay. Help us to recognize that this community of believers um, is for the edification of the church and for your work to continue, Jesus. Um, be with us the rest of this Sunday and the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen.